Hello everyone and welcome to the September 18th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our top stories. Employers and insurance carriers need to be mindful of the risks of attorney fee and cost awards, which may, at the end of the day, be a major disincentive for using a courtroom to resolve conflicts. A new published opinion from the Court of Appeal clearly illustrates this point. An award of fees and costs in litigation may be authorized by statutory provisions such as in the Public Attorney General actions, PAGA, involving employers or by a provision stated in a contract agreed to by the litigating parties before the dispute arose. A Los Angeles County Superior Court final ruling on attorney fees and costs to a prevailing plaintiff in WNG Construction versus AAA Solar Electric illustrates how this works. The plaintiff in this case, WNG, won a construction dispute with a contractual fee clause against the defendant, winning compensatory damages of about $3 million. And the plaintiff did gain everything they wanted, but they were still the prevailing party under the fee clause. So they filed a motion for attorney fees totaling around $2.1 million and costs claimed of over $205,000. And after some reductions, the judge awarded fees of about $1.3 million and costs of about $82,000. The litigation between the parties in this case started in 2016, and now a notice of appeal has been filed. Thus, it is likely there will be several more years of litigation and subsequent motions for additional attorney fees and costs. The parties together probably spent about $4.5 million in fees and costs to resolve this dispute, adjudicated to be worth a little more than $3 million. And it is likely that another million or two will be spent on the appeal. So in rough numbers, it will probably cost about $6 million to resolve a $3 million dispute. Disputes like this one have been in courts for years. And back in 1993, an appellate case authored by Justice Wallen in a small case between a homeowner association and a woman who owned a home in the association over the color of the paint she applied to her home. In that case, the homeowner prevailed and filed a motion for attorney fees and costs, but it was denied by the exasperated trial judge who said in court that this case could have been a 10-minute small claims case, so he's not going to give attorney fees to anybody. But on appeal, the trial judge was reversed because attorney fees were mandatory, and the homeowner was indeed awarded attorney fees and costs. But in doing so, the Court of Appeal noted that it was not at all unsympathetic to the trial court's concerns, and concluded by announcing that, all too often, attorney fees become the tail that wags the dog in litigation, particularly when the economic value is minute compared to the litigation costs. This is a good case for parties to keep in mind when deciding how to resolve disputes. 
And now our crime report. A jury has acquitted L.A. Sheriff's deputy of workers' compensation fraud charges. Back in 2020, 50-year-old Kevin Adams, who lives in Covina, was a deputy sheriff assigned to the Twin Tower Correctional Facility Custody Services Division. The terse announcement by the district attorney's office at the time simply stated that he was accused of filing a false workplace injury claim for which he was receiving disability benefits in 2015, and he faced a possible maximum sentence of five years in county jail if convicted. Now, on September 13th this year, that's 2023, Sheriff Adams was acquitted of the charges after jurors deliberated about two hours. In this case, the prosecution alleged that Adams had filed a false workplace injury claim for which he received disability benefits, while the defense successfully argued that there was an error in medical records about the cause of his March 2015 knee injury. Mr. Adams has been on unpaid leave since charges were filed against him, and according to his attorney, he intends to file a petition with the court seeking to have his client declared factually innocent of his charges. And he has also wanted his job back from day one. And in regulatory news, the California legislature finished its 2023 legislative session earlier this month but not before frantic lobbying by advocacy groups, some controversy, and last-minute nighttime deal-making. The most tumultuous legislative deal was all about the fast food industry. The backstory begins with the passage of the Fast Food Standards and Accountability Recovery Act in 2022, known simply as the FAST Act. This was Assembly Bill 257, giving the state's 550,000 fast food workers a seat at the table and bargaining power. This 2022 law would have established the Fast Food Council within the Department of Industrial Relations, who would establish sector-wide minimum standards on wages, working hours, and other working conditions related to the fast food restaurant workers. In response to this act, a coalition was formed to refer the FAST Act back to voters and suspend its implementation until the election in November 2024. Then on December 5, 2022, this coalition submitted over 1 million signatures from Californians to county election officials in order to prevent AB 257 from taking effect until voters had their say. But... The DIR director said she would nonetheless implement the FAST Act on January 1, 2023. So the coalition filed a lawsuit and obtained a preliminary injunction against the DIR until the election took place on the ballot initiative. Now, in response to this referendum, the SEIU union backed another bill, AB 1228, which would have required that a fast food restaurant franchisor share with his fast food restaurant franchisee all the civil legal responsibility and civil liability for the franchisee's violation of California labor laws. 
And the big franchise fast food organizations wanted none of that liability imposed upon them. So this September 2023, that's this month, a deal was made between fast food companies, unions, and lawmakers that agreed to a $20 minimum wage to fast food workers starting next April. And in exchange, the major franchisors would not face liability for labor violations at their franchisees. The amendment also prohibits any city, county, or city and county from enacting or enforcing any ordinance or regulation applicable to fast food restaurant employees. In addition to this fast food law deal, lawmakers sent other bills which are of interest to California employers and the insurance industry to Governor Newsom for his signature or possible veto. One involves an agreement to eventually raise the minimum wage to $25 an hour for tens of thousands of health care workers. Another bill that is one of the California Labor Federation's top priorities allows striking workers to collect unemployment benefits after two weeks on the picket line. But not every bill made it to the governor's desk. For instance, AB 518 would have extended paid family leave for family members who do not have a legal or biological relationship, as this measure was held in the Senate, perhaps until next year. The U.S. Department of Labor has just proposed a new rule that would strengthen protections for farm workers in the H-2A program. The proposed rule includes adding new protections for worker self-advocacy and clarifying existing anti-retaliation protections and also expand workers' rights to invite and accept guests, including labor organizations, to employer-provided housing. The proposed rule would clarify that an employer only terminates a worker for cause when the worker either fails to meet pre-specified productivity standards or fails to comply with employer policies after the employer applies a system of progressive discipline and would make foreign labor recruitment more transparent requiring employers to provide a copy of all agreements with any agent or recruiter the employer engaged in recruiting prospective H-2A workers to the department, regardless of whether the agent is in the United States or abroad, and would also require employers to identify and disclose the name and locations of anyone soliciting H-2A workers on their behalf, and to improve workers' access to safe transportation, including seat belts. Notice of this proposed rulemaking will be open for public comment for 60 days after it had been published in the Federal Register, and the Department has provided information on its website on sending in comments. The Federal Office of Workers' Compensation has proposed changes to Longshore Benefits Penalty and Penalty Appeal Rules. The Longshore and Harbor Workers' Compensation Act establishes a comprehensive federal workers' compensation system for an employee's disability or death 
arising in the course of covered maritime employment. And the Office of Workers' Compensation Programs, that's OWCP, administers the Act and its extensions. This administrator has just proposed new rules for imposing and reviewing civil money penalties prescribed by the Longshore Act, as well as the procedures to contest its penalty determinations. The new subpart sets out procedures for challenging proposed penalties in a hearing before an administrative law judge and to petition the Secretary of Labor for further review. During the hearing, entities would have the opportunity to submit facts and arguments, after which the administrative law judge would determine whether the respondent violated the statutory or regulatory provisions under which the penalty was assessed and whether the amount of the penalty assessed was appropriate. And within 30 days afterward, the respondent has the ability to request reconsideration of the ALJ's decision. The department invites written comments on the proposed rule from interested parties by November 13, 2023. And in medical news, the local Initiative Health Authority for Los Angeles County, LA Care, is a public agency that provides health insurance for low-income individuals in Los Angeles County through four health coverage programs, including Medi-Cal. Back in March 2022, LA Care was fined $55 million by the California Department of Managed Health Care and the California Department of Health Care Services for what it said was deep-rooted systemic failures that threaten the health and safety of its members. The department said their investigations were triggered by a September 2020 Los Angeles Times article that identified multiple county residents who died of their conditions following extensive delays for treatment. And now, slightly more than one year later, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights, that's OCR, just announced a settlement of potential violations of the HIPAA rules with LA Care. OCR's investigation found evidence of potential non-compliance with the HIPAA privacy and security rules across LA Care's organization. The settlement concludes two OCR investigations initiated from a large breach report and a media article regarding separate security incidents. Under the agreement, LA Care agreed to pay $1.3 million and to implement a corrective action plan. Sutter Health is a not-for-profit integrated health delivery system headquartered in Sacramento, California. It operates 24 acute care hospitals, over 200 clinics in Northern California. And according to an accusation made in 2021 by the Board of Pharmacy, a routine inspection in January 2019, an investigator noted major deficiencies relating to compounding training among staff of one of its pharmacies. The pharmacist in charge and her staff allegedly had not conducted most of the training required prior to commencing compounding. 
The investigator also found the only sink available was in a restroom, despite pharmacy law requiring a sink with running water within the parenteral solution compounding area or its adjacent areas. The board investigator also observed that compounding staff failed to wear appropriate clothing, such as non-shedding gowns, and wore isolation gowns instead. And they failed to don personal protective equipment immediately outside the segregated compounding area. They did not dry their hands with a low-lint towel prior to donning a non-shedding gown, and they also wore visible jewelry. The pharmacy documented sterile compounding with a system they called EPIC, E-P-I-C, and did not ensure the records kept included all the required elements. The board investigator also observed unsanitary conditions, including that the pharmacy did not clean the hoods, all surfaces and floors, with a germicidal detergent and sterile water. Following this accusation, Sutter Coast Hospital Pharmacy entered into a stipulated settlement in May 2023, and it admitted all of the accusations made against it. Its probation began this July 2023, and the hospital will be subjected to unannounced visits from the pharmacy board and will be required to provide quarterly updates to the state, provide five hours of compounding education for pharmacy technicians, and also pay an undisclosed fine. The pharmacy said it has since worked with the state pharmacy board and violations have been corrected. So said a spokesperson for the Sacramento-based Sutter Health, who previously told this to Beckers. And a heartbreaking milestone haunts this year's 9-11 anniversary. The New York Post and other media report that 341 Fire Department of New York members have now died of ground zero related illnesses. This is nearly equaling the death toll for other firefighters that perished in the 2001 terror attack at ground zero. According to a recent study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Network, exposure to the enormous cloud of toxins, dust, and debris that resulted from the terrorist attack has been linked to an increased risk of cardiovascular disease among first responder firefighters. In this cohort study of 9,796 firefighters, Among the firefighters in the study, those present in the morning of 9-11 had a higher risk than those who showed up later in the week. The two skyscrapers were pulverized into burning ash laden with lead and other heavy metals, and the plume of smoke could be seen from space. And another study published in JNCI Cancer Spectrum of 28,729 members of the general responder cohort identified 1,072 cancers in 999 responders with elevations in cancers incident for all cancer sites combined. While consumer VR, that's virtual reality, remains a niche product, 
The technology is proving to be valuable in certain corners of healthcare. Kettering Health in Dayton is one of dozens of health systems in the U.S. working with emerging technologies like VR as one tool for helping doctors to train on and treat patients. Kettering uses software developed by Precisionos, a company that builds VR modules for training surgeons, medical residents, and medical device representatives for its orthopedics program. Orthopedics residents at the University of Rochester also use Precisionos. And a retired professor at the university said, the software is sophisticated and very realistic, especially as a way to learn the steps of an orthopedic procedure. And one of the primary applications of VR in healthcare has been targeted at pain treatment. And locally, Cedars-Sinai is preparing to launch a virtual platform to help people with gastrointestinal issues like Crohn's disease, celiac disease, or acid reflux, as well as others for anxiety, addiction, and premenopausal health. The technology has also attracted the attention of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, which is using extended reality at more than 160 facilities to help patients with pain management, behavioral therapy, and both physical and cognitive rehabilitation. The immersive program manager at the VA said there are currently more than 50 separate use cases for the technology across the VA's different sites. And in another story, the Department of Veterans Affairs said it may resume agency-wide adoption of its new electronic health record system next summer, after it was placed on hold last April due to problems involving patient health and safety and frustration among users. The House Veterans Affairs Committee and a House Appropriations Subcommittee scheduled hearings to receive updates on what originally was supposed to be a 10 billion-dollar Oracle Cerner Millennium Record System, now used at just five VA sites in the Pacific Northwest and Ohio. VA officials told members of Congress that introduction of the Oracle Cerner System across 166 additional hospitals could resume in 2024 if the department makes progress on several goals, including a successful rollout in March at the Captain James A. Lovell Federal Health Care Center in Illinois. Acting Program Executive Director at the VA Electronic Health Record Modernization Integration Office told members of the House the department is aiming to build a system that is user-friendly to staff members and veterans, and if it has no, which has no negative impact on operations and performs 100% of the time. This system was first introduced in October 2020, and almost immediately it drew criticism from medical providers for its complexity and also led to delays in care and safety risks for patients. In November 2022, lawmakers raised concerns that two veterans may have died as a result of the system's complexities. Reviews by the Government Accountability Office and the VA Inspector General that found hundreds of issues with the system. So, 
VA leadership decided to halt further development until these problems were resolved. And lawmakers remain frustrated over the costs, which include a $1.86 billion request in the fiscal 2024 budget. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcast, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarin, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.